51 and a half, where we talk about science fiction, horror, fantasy, and all things pop culture. I am your host, John Allen. With me, as always, is my co-host... Snyderman 501 Nick Snyder. Nick, let's get right to it. What's the roundup? All right, so the past couple of weeks, we saw the death of a legend. Stephen Sondheim, the iconic Broadway producer and playwright and musician... Passed away at the age of 91. Now, if you don't know who Stephen Sondheim is, he is responsible for some of the most iconic musicals of all time. If you love Sweeney Todd, that's him. If you love West Side Story, that's him. Uh, He did Into the Woods. He did Gypsy. Uh, He will be missed by the theater community. It's sad. Again, he was 91, but brilliant, brilliant genius artist. Sad to see him go. Yeah, and you know what? Sweeney Todd is one of my absolute favorite musicals. Absolutely love it. Absolutely brilliant. It's so good. Another thing that we got to see this past week was the first opening moments of Jurassic World Dominion, which I am here for. I enjoyed it. Uh, you watched it with me. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And, okay, so my first thoughts on it is we got to see... 65 million years ago, we got to see the T-Rex that our Rexy was cloned from, the the Rex from the first movie and subsequent films, was cloned from. We got to see it get get into a fight, and that was just a really, really cool thing. Now, I watched it with my kid as well. She thought she was watching a a trailer for a live-action Land Before Time. I'm like, okay, I can see why you think that. But it then goes 65 million years into the future, and we're chasing Rexy around a drive-in theater, which I loved seeing. That was so cool. Uh, a lot of fun and really, really hypes me up for Dominion. I'll tell you what I'm stoked about is the fact that the legacy characters come back. We get Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum back. Oh, I know. That is going to be so exciting. And it, from what I've seen, it looks to be a very... It's really taking the idea of Jurassic World to heart. And it really seems to be a very global movie because we've seen snippets of the of the movie being shot in the snow, in the desert, in forests, in all that stuff. So I'm really excited for it. I wasn't a big fan of Fallen Kingdom, but I think Dominion is really, really, really going to elevate that for me. I hope so because, honestly, Fallen Kingdom was not a great movie. It was, and it had its problems. But at the end of the day, and as you've always brought up, it's a middle piece, so it ha- you know it's it's going to have a bit of a dip. But Dominion looks exciting, and I can't wait. But middle pieces shouldn't have a dip. That's the thing. If you look at something like The Empire Strikes Back, that is by and large thought of as the best Star Wars movie by a lot of fans and a lot of people. And it was, from the original trilogy, the middle piece. That is true. So middle pieces, I, I'm sorry, they, they should be great movies. And I don't disagree with you. And the fact of the matter is, is a lot of middle pieces have that kind of bandwidth to be absolutely brilliant. And sometimes they're just not. Now, before we go on about anything else, I did want to bring up something else that I found yesterday and absolutely loved. So Warner Brothers has released on Spotify a Batman radio play. And it is absolutely brilliant. It, I, I listen, there's only two episodes in so far, but I listened to it last night while I was playing Jurassic World Evolution 2. And it is, it's funny. It's, it's very well done. The voices are in it and are great. They got Jason Sudeikis. I'm not sure who plays who, to be honest with you, but they got Jason Sudeikis, Rosario Dawson, a few other people. And it was just a lot of fun. Yeah. Speaking of things that you found, that mm-hmm. I found yesterday, I came across this fellow. Uh, he goes uh, by the band name of Lover's Lane, and he does these John Carpenter-inspired tunes. And he's just started doing them. And so I had a nice conversation with him through the magic of the internet. And you can find his music, and this is great stuff. I really, really like it. And I, I told him I, I loved it. And you can find him by looking up on YouTube, Lover's Lane, and look for Visions, because he said that's his most popular song. I guarantee you, if you are a fan of 80s horror soundtracks, 80s sci-fi soundtracks, this stuff sounds like it could have been written by John Carpenter, and uh, he's just done a marvelous job. So again, uh, go to YouTube, Lover's Lane, Visions. You won't be disappointed. And while we're on the topic of music, John, I just want to mention a friend of the show, Josh Farmer and his band, Talbotville Gore, 
has released their newest album, The Five Stakes, and that can be found on Spotify by searching Talbot Vilgore or The Five Stakes. If you like theatrical metal, that is the band for you. They are brilliant. Check them out. Big congratulations to Talbot Vilgore. Break a leg, guys. All right, John, what's, what we got next? Oh, my gosh. This is something that every Canadian is going to lose their mind over, and I think the Americans should, too. If you don't know, yesterday, Ryan Reynolds received the Order of Canada. Now, John, for those of us who don't know, what is the Order of Canada? The Order of Canada is pretty much like getting a knighthood. It is the highest degree of merit that can be bestowed upon a citizen of Canada in an outstanding level of talent and service or an exceptional contribution to Canada and humanity. So when we look at Ryan Reynolds, first of all, there's his talent. Yeah, that's that, a, that's undeniable. Yeah, it's immense. Like the guy is versatile. He's funny as all hell, and he's amazing. Like he's just so good at what he does. And keeping in in uh, tune with Ryan Reynolds' personality, Stephen Page of the Bare Naked Ladies sang him a song called "Canada Loves You Back," which you can look up. It's a funny, funny song, and it's touching as well. And then it shows all of the humanitarian things that Ryan Reynolds has been involved with. And you know, to me, that is the mark of a true humanitarian because you never really hear about, in the news, Ryan Reynolds doing humanitarian work, charity work, things like that. I didn't really know he was involved. And that tells me that he is not doing it for the publicity. He is doing it because he is a genuinely kind human being. And the list is varied and extensive. And I bet it is. I mean, people have gotten the Order of Canada for one thing, for one bit of humanitarianism. There must have been 10 to 20 things that were listed. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, congratulations to Ryan Reynolds, the man that is Deadpool. And like Steve Page said, Canada loves you back. Indeed we do. All right. What are we up to next? I want to talk just briefly about Alien, the 1979 classic that Ridley Scott directed. It was on TCM last night, Turner Classic Movies. My mother had never seen it before. Really? No. Of course, well, of well, course not. Mm-hmm. She's an 82-year-old woman. The sound of Music, that's her style. So we watched it. Nick, I got to tell you, you know my mother. I do. She found it hilarious. She found it hilarious. Yes. One of American Film Institute's scariest movies, most pounding moments, into the Horror Hall of Fame, and my mother found it hilarious. So I'm bringing it up for a reason. I hadn't watched Alien in quite some time, and I noticed that there's a lot of memes out there where they're talking about the mansplaining or the misogyny or the what, whatever you want to call it, where they don't listen to Sigourney Weaver as Ripley, mm-hmm. you know, and so the, they don't listen to the smart woman who winds up surviving with the cat. But I noticed something that I think a lot of people have not noticed or they pushed to the side. It wasn't Ripley that they should have been listening to. If you go in and you watch the dialogue and you watch it very carefully, the moment they go into where the space jockey is, Lambert is with them. Ripley's back on the ship. She's right. back on the Nostromos. And Lambert says, before they go down into the well, down to where the eggs are, down to where the face huggers are, where it gets John Hurt, she says, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah, she does do that, doesn't she? And if they had listened to her, well, then we wouldn't have had a movie. That's true. But... As the movie continues on, Lambert is saying all of these things that are very logical, that is basically saying, hey, let's GTFO. Right. And she even says to Ripley, "Can let, let's get on the shuttle and GTFO. And Ripley says, well, it's not going to hold four people. Fine, let's jettison the thing out into space. She says all the things that Sigourney Weaver, as Ripley, winds up doing in the film. To save herself. That's so true, yeah. So, never mind this this nonsense about, oh, they, they should have been listening to Ripley, the smart woman, because she said, oh, if I follow protocols, this thing doesn't come in. If you had listened to Lambert in the first place and GTFO'd, none of it would have happened. True, but as you said, then we wouldn't have a movie. Then we wouldn't have a movie. I get that, but I'm just saying these memes go out there, and it's like, yeah, but hey, if we're really going to give credit where credit's due, why didn't they listen to Lambert? And I think that's a really interesting thing to notice, because it, it does give a lot of subtext to the film, because 
Well, it gives more subtext to the film because just the, we have these male characters are just not listening to the women around them. Right. And, you know, even the women aren't listening to the, each other. Yeah. You yeah. know, so anyway, fantastic film. Bringing it up because we are going to talk today about Ghostbusters. And, of course, Sigourney Weaver played Dana in Ghostbusters. There is no oh, Dana, Dana, only Zool. All right, so Ghostbusters. John, you know me. You know the first Ghostbusters is one of my favorite films of all time. It's an exciting film. I saw it when I was 15 in the theater. 1984, saw it with my friend Charlene, who has since passed away, unfortunately. We had a great time watching it. One of the biggest movies of 1984. Yeah, and 1984 was a huge movie year as well. Now... One of the things for me is Ghostbusters isn't just another movie. Ghostbusters is one of those things that has shaped parts of my personality, specifically my humor. There's a lot of things that I find funny specifically because I love Ghostbusters. And it is what I call one of my comfort films. It's one of those movies that I can put on and just it makes me happy watching it. Oh, dude, it's practically a way of life for you. I mean, you've got the figures there. You've got the Ghostbusters jacket. You've got a proton pack. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And I love it. I just love it. Dan Aykroyd is one of my favorite comedians. Bill Murray is one of my favorite performers of all time. I love Sigourney Weaver. I love Rick Moranis. Like, the movie has so much in it that I just love. I love the supernatural. And then you round it up with Harold Ramis, Annie Potts, Ernie Hudson. Mm -hmm. It's just a fantastic film. It's, It's a fantastic film. It's a great cast. And, of course, you also have William Atherton as Peck, who just plays such a... A slimy weasel in the movie. It's great. Just a great villain. Okay, but is he a slimy weasel or is Venkman just an antagonistic bastard? Well, it's both. It's both. Like, here's the thing. And basically, Peck was in the right for what he did. So before we get into actually talking about the Ghostbusters movie, the sequels, the subsequent media empire that is Ghostbusters, let's talk about where Ghostbusters came from. Okay, let's do that. So, Dan Aykroyd. And it's really neat. Like, there's so much Ghostbusters trivia out there that I've actually forgotten some because I knew this and then I looked it up. Yeah, I mean, it was written by Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. It was. So, Dan Aykroyd, Ghostbusting is really Dan Aykroyd's family business. Dan Aykroyd's great-grandfather was a spiritualist and a medium. His grandfather worked with radios and he actually tried to use radios to contact the dead and his father peter h Aykroyd, wrote a history of ghosts the true story of seances mediums ghosts and ghostbusters with a woman named angela nerth so dan Aykroyd has already been steeped in supernatural and dan Aykroyd legitimately believes that ghosts are real he believes in the supernatural and he wanted to write a movie actually one of the things that he really wanted to do was write a movie that kind of harkens back to the old Abbott and Costello and the ghost movies. That's That was his initial plan, and then it just kind of sprawled out from there. Oh, yeah, and there were so many of those Abbott and Costello movies. Um, so that was, that was part of where it all came from. So he's already steeped in supernatural life, essentially, because of his family, which I think is really, really neat. And I, I would love to talk to Dan Aykroyd about this stuff because I think it would be really fun. But I think it's really neat that this, his experience with his family is what really informed his ideas for Ghostbusters. Now, it goes on beyond that. So initially, the idea for Ghostbusters, when he was pitching this film, it wasn't four guys in New York. Initially, the plan was for it to be an intergalactic core of Ghostbusters, and it took place in the future, and there was time travel, and Ivan Reitman eventually said, dude, we can't make this movie. So (laughs) Harold Ramis was brought in at that point. And he helped him write the movie that we now know and love. You know, that brings up an interesting point, because I know at one point, when they were looking at a sequel for Ghostbusters, one of the sequels that they were looking for was Ghosts from Outer Space. Yep. Moving on from there, the original script was written with, of course, Dan Aykroyd, of course, Harold Ramis, as well as John Belushi and Eddie Murphy in Mind as the Boys. Now, John Belushi unfortunately passed away before the movie could be made. So that part went to Bill Murray, who went on to play 
Peter Venkman and made that part. Well, that's one of his iconic roles. He's he plays. He's just so cool. <laughs> um, and of course, Eddie Murphy was supposed to play Winston Zedmore. Now, the thing is, in the, the movie was pitched with Eddie Murphy in mind. Yeah. So but, was he supposed to play it, or did they just pitch it to him? He was supposed to play it. Okay. The reason he didn't wind up playing it is because he had his own blockbuster film to contend with that year, that being Beverly Hills Cop. Unfortunately, the schedule didn't allow for it. So the search began for a new Winston. They got Ernie Hudson. And Ernie Hudson, I, I love Ernie Hudson. I think he did a great job in this movie. He, he did, did a fantastic job. Yeah. I actually had the pleasure of meeting Ernie Hudson at Niagara Falls Comic Con. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And he's a, a big fan of, of Ghostbusters. He's actually, um, he elevated that character as far yeah, as I'm did. concerned. And yeah. he gets one of the best lines of the movie. When someone when asked, asked if you're, you're a god, god, you say yes! <laughs> I love, I love Winston. I love him so much. One of the real problems I and one of the things is being critical of the things that you love. I love Ghostbusters, but there's things that about it that I don't like, and that stuff that happened off screen and on screen. And one of the things that I did not like is that the producers really screwed Ernie Hudson on this film. So when Ernie Hudson auditioned, he auditioned for the script that had. Eddie Murphy's Winston Zedmore. So Eddie Murphy's Winston Zedmore was in it from the start. He had a background as an Air Force pilot and demolitions. He had a lot of meat to him. That's what Ernie Hudson auditioned with. So when when Ernie Hudson showed up on set, he was no longer in it from the start. He doesn't show up until 40 minutes in. But Ernie Hudson takes what little part he has and does a tremendous job with it. And when he shows up in the sequel... It's so good. He, he's so good in that role. But, you know, it's interesting, though, because you, you say this as sort of a critical uh, thought process with it, and I understand that. But when I look at the movie, it feels very organic and logical that Winston comes in just looking for a job. It does. And it's really kind of cool that we get to see that kind of job interview with him and Janine. Because he just makes it very clear. He wants a job. He says, you can tell me whatever you want as long as it has a steady paycheck. I'm in. Yeah, and I love the line that comes after. It's like, great, you're hired. Yeah, right? You're, you're here, you're hired. One of, the, one of the things I actually really love about Ghostbusters, actually one of the many things I love about Ghostbusters, is the chemistry that Ernie Hudson actually has with Dan Aykroyd. They have scenes together, and they just seem like really close friends right off the bat. One of my favorite scenes is actually when they're talking about Revelations in the, in the Act of One. They just gel so well with each other. And I think what's really great, in comes this character and the guys who are scientists and Ernie Hudson's character of of, uh, uh, Winston Stedmore is not a scientist and they treat him like an equal. Yeah, they do. And that's great. He just fits in with the company so well. Yeah, and he fits in very organically too. Absolutely he does. So going to bring it back a little bit, I just want to talk a little bit more trivia with what led up to Ghostbusters. Prior to Ghostbusters getting made, there was a bit of a kerfuffle with the name. And it was kind of at a uh, an 11th hour type deal. So prior to Ghostbusters getting made, there was another television show called Ghostbusters, which followed two guys and a monkey. Well, a gorilla. Oh, there was a cartoon. No, nope, nope. There was a live action TV show. Legit, there was a live action TV show about this. So that the the rights to the name laid with whoever created that that TV show, and there was a lot of problems getting the rights to the name Ghostbusters about that. And we'll bring up that other Ghostbusters cartoon in a little bit. It got to a point where they had to come up with other names just in case they couldn't get the rights to use this name, which included a title called Ghostbreakers, which doesn't really have the same ring to it. But they got the name. And everything else is history. Going back to the cartoon, there was actually two Ghostbusters cartoons that came out. We had the Ghostbusters cartoon from Filmation, which was based off of that sitcom from the 70s with the two gentlemen and the man dressed as the gorilla. And we, of course, had the real Ghostbusters, which is based off of the Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis Ghostbusters movie. Now, the cartoon that was made by Filmation... It took a much more fantastical approach than even the original 
their original sitcom or even our Ghostbusters movie had. You had a car that was essentially a ghost car. You had a villain that was a skeleton, a phone that rang for them that was a skeleton. A lot of skeletons, tons of skeletons. Um, it was an interesting cartoon. I enjoyed it. I, I, I was always kind of confused as to why there were two Ghostbusters cartoons when I was a little kid. I, of course, obviously found out why. Then you have the real Ghostbusters, which, again, based off of the Ghostbusters movies, it is, to this day, it's one of my favorite cartoons of the 80s. I, I have I have it on DVD, and I still watch it from time to time because it's enjoyable, and it has really, really, really weird and out there ghosts. Now, that also comes into the, comes into the idea that Ghostbusters is essentially a media empire at this point because you have the movies, you have comic books, you have cartoons, you have video games. It's really sprung into this really huge thing. And as someone who is a fan of the film series, I'm glad to see all of that. I've read, I have a bunch of the comic books. They're fantastic comic books. If you haven't read any of them, definitely check them out. But yeah, so you got a lot of, the Ghostbusters movies have a lot of history behind it. Now, going into, going back to the first movie, we got Bill Murray as Venkman. Venkman is kind of the epitome of the 80s cool guy at the time. And this is uh, characters that Bill Murray has played a lot. Yeah, exactly. Like, Venkman isn't too, like, as as much as I love the movie, he's not too different from other characters that Bill Murray has played, either prior to Ghostbusters or after. Yeah, you can see a character very similar in Stripes, um, Groundhog Day, just pretty much name a movie, but Bill Murray does it so well. He does, he does, and it's it's very easy to buy him in that role. And the the cool thing about Venkman is that yeah, he's he does some kind of skeevy things in the movie, but that's that's very indicative of of the time. Um, like at the start of the movie when we see him doing the shock test with the 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 guy who might be psychic and the cute girl, and he's. Cute girl played by Jennifer Runyon. There you go. Um, and he's shocking the guy who is clearly psychic when he's getting the cards right and not shocking the girl who's getting the cards wrong when he's supposed to be shocking her. So you you got these kind of skeevy things, but he's still a good guy. He has his friends back. He, ha- he He's, yeah, he's a little bit pers- too persistent with Dana, but he's really there for her. And he just plays, he plays it very cool. He plays it very well, and it's just fun to watch him. Dan Aykroyd, as Venkman says in the movie, Ray is the heart of the Ghostbusters, and Dan Aykroyd plays that so well. He's such a, there's always this sense of wonderment with Ray, this childlike wonderment when when, when he's on screen, because, like, he doesn't seem like your typical adult. And it's amazing, too, because you're talking about uh, the actors in this. And, of course, Dan Aykroyd and Rick Moranis are both Canadian actors. So, of course, we have an affinity for them. But you look at this cast. You look at Annie Potts as Janine. You look at Rick Moranis as Lewis. You look at Dan Aykroyd as Ray. You look at all of these actors, and they are so good at the types of characters that they play. Rick Moranis... Uh, for maybe some people that don't know, started on SCTV. Same with Harold Ramis. Yeah, and they were doing Bob and Doug McKenzie. Completely different character. And then all of a sudden he gets into these more nerdy kind of characters that we all kind of root for, but still laugh at. But we're not laughing at him, we're laughing with him. And I think that that's, that's a great trait that Rick Moranis has in being able to play those kind of characters. And let's talk about that for a second. So, well, their, their, their pedigree, their background. This is a movie that actually married SNL alumni with SCTV alumni, which I absolutely love. Now, another thing about Lewis Tully, it wasn't originally supposed to be Rick Moranis. It was supposed to be another SCTV alumni, John Candy. I don't really remember why Candy didn't do it, but he did. He, he turned it down. I think he was doing another movie, like uh, Ernie, uh, like Eddie Murphy. 
You know what? I'm kind of glad because I don't think it would have worked the same way. I think it would have. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked the same way though. Like the thing, the thing is, like both Rick Moranis and John Candy are automatically lovable. They look like friendly guys. They have this very, this very lovable demeanor about them. Makes it very easy to root for them. But John Candy is bigger. Yeah. But if you look at the characters that John Candy has played, you look at him as Uncle Buck, you look at him in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you look at him in The Great Outdoors, which he did with Dan Aykroyd, yeah, you're right, he's lovable, you root for the schlub, but everything that Lewis does, coming from someone of Rick Moranis' stature versus somebody of John Candy's stature... Yeah. And the thing is, like, I've watched Ghostbusters so many times, it's hard for me to imagine someone else in the role... And I've tried in my head to actually imagine John Candy doing the scene where he tries to talk to the horse. Yeah. And it just, it wouldn't, Rick Moranis has such a certain earnestness about it. I just don't think it would have really worked as well with John. And don't get me wrong, I love John Candy. I thought he was brilliant. But I don't think it would have worked as well. I honestly think that Ghostbusters is one of those movies that you look at and you look at each and every actor and you look at each and every character that they play and you go, this was perfectly cast. Well, and that's the thing. Like, John Belushi, as I mentioned before, John Belushi was supposed to play Venkman. I cannot imagine John Belushi playing Venkman. No, because I think... I mean, that comes again... We're going back to Blues Brothers. Yeah. You know, that, that camaraderie that... Uh, Dan Aykroyd and, and Belushi had. I don't think, as, as incredible as an actor as John Belushi was, incredible comedian, I don't know that it would have had the same je ne sais quoi as Bill Murray. Bill Murray brings us a bit of a sophistication to it. Yeah, I agree with that completely. But, you know, at the end of the day, we'll never know. It, it would be interesting to see how the movie had played out if, they had, if they'd done it how they initially wanted, but... It's another episode of What If. (laughs) (laughs) So, moving on from there, we've got Sigourney Weaver as Dana. Now, Sigourney Weaver doesn't typically play damsel in distress roles. And you never really get that vibe from her. Yeah, they have to save her at the end, but she's very much her own person, her own character. And she does come off as a strong woman. She's independent. She lives alone in New York. She's a cellist for a major symphony orchestra in New York. She's not some cookie-cutter character. She's given something to do and say. Yeah, and she's a woman with incredible talent. She is accomplished. Mm-hmm. She has made her way through life. And she's that good example of what women basically have to go through every day. I mean, she has to resist the the flirtations of Lewis. She has to resist the flirtations of Venkman. And that's what makes the characters so rich and interesting is the fact that Dana, as played by Sigourney Weaver, can go toe-to-toe with Bill Murray as Peter Venkman. She doesn't put up with his nonsense. She challenges him. She challenges his masculinity, his ego, and his insecurity, and she sees right through his bravado. She really does, and one of the things that I really love about their interactions, specifically when the first time he's in her apartment, when they're looking, well, when he's trying to hit on her, essentially. She essentially verbally gut punches him. And to kind of, like, he, he's, she's just torn him down at that point. And then he realizes, oh, i got business to do. So he goes, "Is are these the eggs? I, I love that scene because it shows how insecure Bankman can be. And it's, it's just a nice little scene between them that, that helps put their characters forward, or move their characters forward. And what I love about the way that Sigourney Weaver plays Dana is the fact that, one, yes, she's an independent and strong woman. She finds herself in in an improbable, impossible, unfathomable situation, and she has no one else to turn to but this chowder head. (laughs) That's good. I like that. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the thing is, like, it's it's understandable to see the, the boys in this situation because of you know we see the first scene when they when they do the library ghost thing right, but you have Dana who is just the type of character who would be in a romantic comedy, and she's chucked into this situation involving ghosts, terror dogs, and someone called Gozer. Yeah. 
Like how like how do you react to that? And then she has to contend with this chowder head hitting on her as well. Well, and honestly, you know, as the movie goes through the on the romantic end of it, it's actually one of those few movies where I can actually see the two of them breaking down one another's barriers and finding that romantic attraction. Because Bill Murray is not the handsomest guy on the planet. Let's let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, okay. But he there is a charm. There yeah. is a charm, and there's a sweetness, and there is that that idea that she looks at him and says, you know, this guy really does care about me. He cares what happens to me. I'm not just arm candy for him, you know. And, and there, there is that that kind of logical moment where they, she says, yeah, okay, let's go out on a date. Sure, let's see what happens. Yeah, and he's he's very endearing. Like he's, you're right. He is incredibly charming. And that's really what Venkman is, is he is just the charm turned up to ten, to 10. Yeah, and when he gets rid of the, the bravado, he gets rid of the nonsense and actually allows the confidence to come through. Not the fake confidence, but the real confidence. Yeah. That's when we get to see the real Peter Venkman. Yeah. And then we have Harold Ramis as Egon. Now, one of the things I like about Egon is that he is... He, he comes off as very kind of one-dimensional at times because he just seems like this... He just seems like a scientist. He, he, he talks a lot of big words. As a hobby, he collects mold spores and fungus, and he just seems like such a straight-laced science guy, for a lack of a better term. But if you look deeper into the movie, when we first meet Egon, he has an interaction with Venkman. And Venkman says to him, this reminds me of the time you tried to drill a hole through your head. And Egon says, that would have worked too if you hadn't stopped me. And that tells us that Egon is probably a little crazier than he lets on. Or is he just that committed to science? You know, and that, uh, that's it's a, a fine line. Man. It's a fine line. It's a, it fine, is a line. fine line. And speaking of which, this brings us to Ghostbusters Afterlife. It does. Now we have to say at this point, the podcast is going to contain spoilers. It will. This is your spoiler alert. It, we're going to be spoiler heavy here. So, so if you don't, if you haven't seen the movie yet, and you plan on going to see it, now is the time to, um, well. We never want to encourage our listeners to stop listening, but if you don't want spoilers, this is it. Well, they can come back to it later. Yeah. Here's the thing with Ghostbusters Afterlife. I, when I sat there in the theater and watched it, I felt like a kid. I know. Oh, my God. You were bouncing in your seat. <laughs> was it that bad? Yes, it was that oh, bad. Man. Okay. To me, watching Ghostbusters Afterlife was akin to forgetting the original Ghostbusters and getting to watch it again fresh. How I imagine it would feel. It, yeah, and you and I had that discussion where I can tell you how it felt watching Ghostbusters for the very first time at the Capitol Theater. Yeah, it was... I, I Again, I, I love the movie watching it. I've had a week now to let it gestate. And it, it, it had its problems. But it's still a, a really, really, really fun movie. So let's start with... Let's start with what you loved about it. What did you like about it? Because you and I had very different reactions. So, for me, this movie felt like a mixture of Goonies, E.T., and Ghostbusters. And it was kind of... I, I love the Goonies. I love movies that were... Ever since I was a kid, I've loved movies that follow the perspective of kids. Because kids react to things differently than adults do. It almost felt like Spielberg directed this. It kind of did. It kind of did. Um, McKenna Grace, who played Phoebe, I guess Phoebe Spangler, she was the standout of the movie. Her her performance was great. She was... It was it was similar to the, the kind of flatness of Harold Ramis' Egon... Like, she was flat at the right times, very matter-of-factly, and it worked very, very well. And like the original Ghostbusters, this thing was well cast. It really was. It really was. Paul Rudd was, well, I mean, Paul Rudd is charming as hell. Paul Rudd's Paul Rudd at this point. Yeah. Uh, He was great, and I enjoyed him. It was great to see the boys back. Finn Wolfhart was good in it as well. Really, really enjoyed the cast. 
the the effects were great. It was great to see that they were using practical effects, puppets specifically for the terror dogs, alongside CGI. And the story made sense. It was a logical follow up from where we left off with the original boys in the band. And that's where I want to talk about some of the problems of the story. <sighs> Looking at the first two films, knowing the history of the Ghostbusters, I find it very hard to believe. And this is this is this, it's kind of similar to a scene in Man of Steel. In Man of Steel, when young Clark Kent saves the bus full of kids, he asks Pa Kent should I let them drown? And he goes, maybe. In no world does Pa can't say that. Likewise, in this film, I don't think there is a world where Ray Stans says Egon Spangler can burn in hell. I find that very hard to believe. And the reason I find that very hard to believe is because Ray Stans is the paranormal guy. If Egon said, hey, I think Gozer's coming back, I'm pretty sure Ray Stans would have gone to the farm with him. You see, it's interesting you say that because there was, I had way more problems with it than that because friends fight. Friends have fights and even close, long-term friends will disagree and swear they never want to see each other again. To me, it was a logical follow-up through the movie that Egon would sort of be there on his own trying to to keep Gozer and and the, the pits of hell at bay. And that's fair. That's fair. So that's the thing. We've gotten to... A really specific part of the film. So moving on from there, we have uh, Muncher. Like, why not just have Slimer? Why could like I, I would like to have seen Slimer in the film. I know you would would have too. I was really disappointed that Slimer didn't show up even in a post credit. Yeah, it, it would have been good. So what were the so you're you're in a bit of a disagreements with the kind of the inciting incident that. Okay, let, let me with. let me tell you my problems with it. First of all, I love Ghostbusters. Okay, I loved Ghostbusters, loved Ghostbusters too. I even throw a bone to uh, I, I guess it's now called Answer the Call, the female Ghostbusters. It's not that bad of a movie when you really watch it. I really, honestly, Nick from from the start of this, they had that good opening scene where actually Bob Gunton stands in for. Uh, for Harold Ramis, you don't see his face, but Bob Gunton stands in as as live Egon before he, he passes into the afterlife. Yeah, And from there, it was an hour of sheer frickin' boredom where nothing happened. Nothing happened. And it got to the point where everyone kept referring to Egon, to his daughter and the family. There was all this exposition... Oh, the crazy dirt farmer? Oh, yeah, yeah, the crazy dirt farmer. Oh, yeah, that, that insane dirt farmer. Crazy dirt farmer, I'm paraphrasing, of course, to me became the new evil dies tonight. It just got, like, they were just punching us in the face with it. And then the first time a ghost actually shows up, to your point, it's Muncher, this yeah. Muncher thing. Yeah, and Muncher is one of those things where I just looked at him like, ah, and this is a... An excuse to sell a toy. The, the design of it was fine, but it was literally just Slimer. You know, I'm really glad that you had an opportunity to wait on this, because if we had had this podcast last week, it'd be a different conversation. Oh, yeah. I, like, I could not... I couldn't shut up about this film when I first saw it. I was... I, I felt, like I said, I felt like a kid again, and I was... Very hyper about it. I hadn't been. I haven't been this hyper about a movie. Yeah, you were very much in love with it, and you were shooting down everything I had to throw at it. And I, I was sitting there looking at you, going, "Really, Nick? Are we watching the same movie now?" Listen, folks, I'm not saying the movie's bad. What I'm saying is it could have been and should have been so much better. And yeah, I can agree with that. Now, here's the deal. It's okay. Here's the deal. Like I said, I loved this movie when I first saw it. I still really like it. I will I will watch this alongside the Ghostbusters movie anytime. But again, when you have something that you love, it's okay to criticize it. It's okay to rethink how you look at it and go, mm, maybe it wasn't as great as I first thought, 
even with the original Ghostbusters movies, there's certain things about them that bother me, that I am critical of. Scripting issues. Like, if you look at Ghostbusters 2, now I know Ghostbusters 2 is not held in as high esteem as the original Ghostbusters movie, and rightfully so. But it's a decent sequel. It is a decent sequel. But if you look at Ghostbusters 2, or if you look at Dan Aykroyd's later movie, Evolution, these films follow beat for beat the first Ghostbusters movie. If you look at them, they follow the exact same formula. You have the inciting incident in the opener. You get to know the characters. There's even a montage. There's a lot of this. And there's, at the end of it, there's some giant thing walking around. So in the first one, there was, there was the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. The second one, was, was a, there was the Statue of Liberty. And in Evolution, there was the giant amoeba. So these movies are, they have a certain lack oh, of... And, and in Answer the Call, there was the actual logo. Right? Right? Um, and then, like, after the call... Not going to talk too much about it, but it didn't quite follow all the same beats, but it still had some. It had the beats, though. If you really think about it, you have these three women who are scientists, then you have the working class person played by Leslie Jones who joins them, and they just say, okay, great, come on, fantastic. And And they go along, and you have these characters that are are well acted by the actresses. I mean, these are all four fantastic actresses, let's be honest. Yeah. Leslie Jones is hysterical. She stole the show, in my opinion. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because when I look at Afterlife, I'm looking at certain characters that if I went, like you mentioned Finn Wolfhard, poor kid. If he wasn't in the movie, it wouldn't change a thing. Who cares? Yeah, that's that's kind of the thing. Is uh, There are characters. And that's kind of the thing. With Afterlife, some of the characters are just there. You have Phoebe and you have podcast out the kids they're the only ones that really matter yeah and that's the point too there there's a cameo that which shouldn't have been a cameo you bring in uh, an actor of the statue of bokeen woodbine and you give him nothing to do he's just there to be the girl's dad who happens to be the sheriff of the town and oh you're the crazy dirt farmer's daughter okay great so i don't know what is on the cutting room floor but Bokeem Woodbine's character should have been the peck of this movie. Mm, yes, I agree with that completely. They, they they could have set him up because he is technically a government official. He's a sheriff. And he could have had that point of contention with the family from the get-go. And it just wasn't there. Yeah, like the if he showed up when they showed up. Well, and, and there's the thing. If you look at the other Ghostbusters movies... They, they have these kind of human villains as well. In the first movie, Peck, obviously. In the second movie, you have Kurt Fuller as Hardemeyer, the mayor's assistant, who just makes things very difficult for the Ghostbusters. Yeah, and you have your main villains, of course. You have Peter McNichol who, as Janusz, who is basically the acolyte of Vigo the Carpathian. Right. And, and again, I, I mentioned Answer the Call. They have multiple human villains that are kind of against the women trying to be Ghostbusters. I mean, let's start with Charles Dance's Harold Fillmore, who just gives uh, Kristen Wiig a hard time and, and says, oh, yeah, see, uh, this this college is more prestigious than you're bringing to it. You're fired. And then you have Andy Garcia as Mayor Bradley and his uh, assistant Jennifer Lynch playing Cecily Strong, who they're all like, yeah, see, um, yeah, we, we like all the great things that you're doing, but uh, we're going to arrest you now. Uh, you know, and this, this, this wonderful kind of rapport that she has where you think, okay, she's on the lady's side, but she's not. Yeah. And even, uh, and that's even before you get to the main villain of, of Rowan North, uh, played by Neil Casey, you know, who's trying to bring in this apocalyptic thing. But then on top of that, Bill Murray's cameo is a villain against the women, this Martin Heist guy. Yeah, there's so many antagonists in that film. and They're all played very well, and they all add to the story. And it all helps the story progress. And that's what was lacking in Afterlife. Where was the human villain? Yeah, and so, I mean, we saw the human villain. He was there for a second. It was basically a cameo. It was J.K. Simmons as Evo Shandor who didn't even really need to be brought into it. Oh, that, see, and that's that got to me where we had these moments where it was actually wasted. You have somebody like J.K. Simmons, Oscar-winning actor, epitomizes J. Jonah Jameson in the Spider-Man series. Yeah. And he's just a fantastic actor. First saw him in the TV series Oz with Ernie Hudson, oddly oh, yeah. enough. 
And he shows up, and I suppose they did it for comedy. I suppose it could be a red herring. I suppose it could be a MacGuffin. But when you realize that it's J.K. Simmons, and you get all excited, and then nothing happens. And... Again, let's get back to the original point. You have Bokeem Woodbine in there. Yeah. A very talented, known actor who could have been the antagonist that is against the family. His son is dating, or the son is dating his daughter. Another character they gave nothing to do. Yeah. And there's the thing. There should have been a scene where he's like, yeah, I don't want your your kid hanging around with my kid to the mother. Like, I don't... There, there was so much missing there, and it was frustrating. It was. And, you know, and what was interesting, too, one of the things that I did like is it's the first Ghostbusters movie that doesn't take place in New York. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was interesting with the switch of the setting to to see how it play, how a ghost story like that would play out in a small town. Because this isn't... It's not just a ghost story. It's an apocalypse story. And, you know, without getting into too many spoilers, because I really don't want to ruin it for anybody that might listen regardless, I was predicting lines, Nick. Yeah, you were. You were. You were. The The writing was really predictable. Like, legit, we were sitting in the theater, and a character would say something, and John here would answer the character with the line the next, the next character was going to say. Yeah, it was just uh, that that point where it, it's almost just a repeat of Ghostbusters. I was actually not really a big fan of them bringing Gozer back. I was kind of hoping Evil, Evil Shander was going to be the villain. And that would have been interesting. Um, funnily enough, that's something they've done before in the, uh, the 2009 uh, Ghostbusters video game, which was basically Ghostbusters 3 at the time. Evo Shandor was the main villain. It was very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it gave... Gozer gave credence to the boys coming back to try and save the day, but they're old as dirt. And, you know, oh. it just... Uh, it gave them some nice quippy lines, but overall kind of mad. Don't get me wrong, I love seeing the guys. Yeah, yeah. Like, I... I again, I love this film... That the last half hour of it was just magic for me, so there's not much I can really. But you say. know what it boils down to? It boils down to this. This is a movie that is. When did Harold Ramis pass away? It's about 2014. It's about almost ten years too late. Yeah, well, and and that's something else to discuss about the history of Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters three, a proper Ghostbusters three, has been on the on the docket for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. Dan Aykroyd would write it. He would send it. He would send the script to Bill Murray and Bill Murray would use it as a coaster. Uh, Harold Ramis was in and out. Ernie Hudson. I, I don't actually, I've never really read too much about Ernie what, Hudson would have done it. Yeah. End of story. So you have a lot of lost opportunities over the years. It, it was almost like by the time the guys show up, I didn't care anymore. Because the rest of the movie was just so pedantic. I, <clears throat> I, I'm not on the same page as you on that. I again, I loved that last hour, half hour of the movie. The movie was complete fan service. It was, oh, absolutely. It, that movie was designed to send people home happy. But you know, in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with that except it didn't send me home happy. Well, yep, yeah, there's that. <laughs> What else? What can I say? Well, I mean, the other thing that was lacking, though, let's get back to the ghosts. The ghosts in Answer the Call are actually some really neat-looking ghosts when you really get right down to it. You know, uh, the ghosts aren't, like, people said, oh, they were silly, like these balloon ghosts. No, no, no. The ghosts were inside the balloons controlling the balloons. You know, but when you see the ghost uh, from from the mansion, like, she is akin to the librarian ghost yeah. like that is real and and much better special effects so they have these beautiful rich ghosts they have slimer they have a mrs slimer for whatever you want to call her so they kind of elevated that a little bit mm -hmm. and why I, I still can't it's a it's a minor point i guess i still can't get over why they didn't have slimer but the other thing that seemed to be lacking from afterlife was something that I had mentioned to you, seeing it as a 15-year-old in 1984, 
watching that first Ghostbusters, not knowing a thing about it, and that moment that Dana sits down and the terror dog's arms come out from the armchair and grab a hold of her and it spins around and they rush her into the, uh, well, basically the land of Gozer there through the refrigerator was actually a frightening moment. Yeah, I, I didn't watch, I didn't see that scene until I was into my late teens because, full disclosure, I would cover my eyes at it because it scared the crap out of me as a kid. And you get that in Ghostbusters too. You know that that scene where Janusz is dressed as the the uh, the nanny and he's flying through the air and then his his eyes are like headlights and oh my god. Or the scene where they're, when they're in the uh, the subway. The sub, and yeah. The, head, the heads on the spikes. Yeah. Like that is some frightening imagery. And it's really cool that they have that in these movies, which are, you know, essentially considered family movies now. Yeah. And, you know, mind you, um, Answer the Call didn't really have those huge frightening moments. They kind of went more comical. Yeah. But nonetheless, it was still the, the, the image of the first ghost coming up from the basement is creepy. It, it is. So they, they did have some creepy stuff in there. Yeah. And... And let's be honest with you, there's a thing that Afterlife lacked. It was a creepy scene. Yeah. There, there wasn't any in it that was really scary. Uh, just uh, just the vanquishing of Evo Shandor. Yeah. I, I kind of applauded it. I, as much as I, I rail against the fact that Evo Shandor was not the villain... I kind of like the MacGuffin, too. I like the idea that it's like, oh, we're setting this up. It's like, nope. And I do have to say, I loved the mini Stay Puft Marshmallow Mints. Oh, those were brilliant. Those were brilliant. Oh, I loved that. I Um, loved that. Talk about giving Paul Rudd something to do. We've kind of touched on a lot of the stuff we didn't like about the movie. Let's talk about some of the stuff that we did like. First and foremost... Paul Rudd is fantastic in pretty much everything he does. I love Paul Rudd. Mm-hmm. He he added a little bit of je ne sais quoi to the film. He added Paul Rudd. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, it, and he's, he's very good in his interactions with the kids. And I bought the fact that he was into the mom as well. Well, I bought the fact that he was um, basically a, a teacher. Okay. Yeah. And you know that he took that for the steady paycheck because really he's a scientist. And I, it was so humorous when he comes in, the kids are there in summer school, and he's just like, yeah, here, hey, look what I found. I found a VHS of Cujo. Have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And it's just amazing because then he actually meets Phoebe and he strikes up this rapport with her before he even meets the mom. Well, he, yeah. he meets the mom, but I mean, before he realizes that that's yeah. they're related. And he says, oh, wait, this kid's really bright. This kid's really smart. And this, you know, and so I can see that relationship forming. Mm-hmm. So as, as I mentioned earlier, one of the real um, standouts, standouts in this film is McKenna Grace's Phoebe. Uh, she is absolutely wonderful, and I, I, that girl's got a hell of a career ahead of her. But another thing I really loved about the film is the sets, specifically the sets in the mountain where you see all of the Gozer, uh, like Gozer's temple. Yeah, basically. Gozer's temple, absolutely wonderful. And seeing the um, the countdown calendar thing, like uh, the uh, like. The years that's like 1904, the Tungusta Blast, the Manhattan Crossrep in 1984, all that stuff, right? It's cool seeing all that stuff. And it, it was a really fantastic set. Even the house, Egon's house, it was very reminiscent of a haunted house from an 80s kids flight. And, you know, the special effects that they used, the recreation of seeing, uh, again, huge spoiler, Ghost Egon. Yeah, that could have been so bad though. Oh, like, it could have been, but it was it was they, great. They handled it so well. I think the I think the thing that would have made it bad is if they had him talk. Yes, I think that would have pushed it over to oh no, this is bad. That's that would have been uh, they, leaking the fridge right there. They handled all of that perfectly. But one of the problems that I had with it, and you said you you didn't have a problem with it, is the fact that there was that animosity between the daughter. And her father with Egon. 
And I just thought that they wrapped that up way too neatly. And I thought that as a thing, it was kind of a distraction because what it what was great about it. And again, as I said, you know, all the crazy dirt farmer became the new evil dies tonight. They just beat that plot point to death, I thought. And it wraps up so very, very neatly. And we knew all along, we could tell all along, this is not the way Egon would have acted. So here it is, this this trope again of, I have to sacrifice everything to save the world. And that's, again, I understand that. Like, why, when he left, obviously his daughter was young. Why would he want to have his daughter in Gozer's crosshairs? Right. I, I understand all that. You're right. It was wrapped up way too quickly, way too neatly. When yeah, she... because my point was, as you recall, if you have somebody who has been through a traumatic event, and if you are, for lack of a better word, hating that person, even though you find out that that person was not doing these things to hurt you, you don't get over those years of hurt and trauma. You're looking at at least 25 years, I would say, Probably maybe more, that, yeah. like that. Yeah. You just don't get over it like that. So, and yeah, 100%. Yeah. So to me that, and this isn't a slam on Ghostbusters Afterlife. This is a slam on Hollywood writing to begin with. Because this is just always a lazy trope of, you, you see it in all these family movies. Oh, dad doesn't spend enough time because he's busy working and... So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move over to another franchise for a second because I see the correlation here from another franchise from 1984, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So when they did the Michael Bay produced Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back in, I want to say, 2014, they had the relationship between Leonardo and Raphael right. If, I, if there's anything I can say about that, good about that movie, is they had the relationship between the four brothers right. Raphael and Leonardo, very contentious towards each other. Raphael, very antagonistic. And that's something that doesn't get settled very quickly in the comic books, in the cartoons. Hell, even the original three movies. This is something that gets wrapped up in the last act like like nothing happened Yeah, in this movie. It's just all of a sudden, Raph is like, Leo, you were right all along. You're the true leader. Let's go kick Shredder's ass. And I'm just sitting there like, as as a true blue Ninja Turtles fan, I'm just sitting there like, are you kidding me? Well, then, really? And, yeah, and this is the thing. I, I get tired of this lazy trope about, uh, I, I getting back to the father situation, I get tired of that lazy trope of the father is out there, he's working, he's putting food on the table, you have a nice house, oh, but you're not spending enough time with us, your, your job is more important than anything else. Nick, I remember growing up, my father worked for the Public Utilities Commission in the Water Department. Every so often, he would be the on-call guy. Yeah. So if, uh, if a water main broke, he'd have to go and look at it. There were many a Christmas dinner, many a Thanksgiving dinner, many a family event that the PUC would call and Dad had to go. Yeah, and that's just And that's sometimes. just the way it is. And you know what? As a kid, I don't remember going, oh, boo-hoo, my dad wasn't around. Well, and let's get back to uh, Egon's daughter here about this. So, you have this character who's been through trauma because her dad left her. Yeah. Unceremoniously. So this this yeah. works a little bit better than the trope I'm railing against. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, from what we got from it, he just up and left, went a little bit crazy, up and left, and that was it. Why not save some of this for a few, for the sequel? Why not save her reaction to, oh, my dad did this because of this, for the sequel. It's it's an interesting character arc, and they just throw it out. Yeah, and I get that movies only have so much time to tell a, a rich story in. And so that's that was kind of the neat thing. This is one thing I actually did kind of like, is that they saved us seeing Ghost Egon until the very end. I liked the fact that little chess pieces were moving, or that the light was... He was moving the light to show them different things. And, you know, so they already start setting that up, but you just don't get over that that easily. And I'm, I'm going to actually bring a, a a point up about not getting things 
not getting over things very easily. For example, there was a case in Canadian history uh, with criminal activity that I'm not going to get into the details of because that's not what this uh, podcast is about, but it does make the point. So the um, prisoner was in jail for many, many years, and the victim's family hated him. And then through new DNA evidence, uh, after decades of this man being in jail, being incarcerated, they found out he didn't do it, as he had said all along. And I remember this quote from the brother of the victim who said, how do I stop hating somebody that I've hated for 30 years? Right, yeah. And he doesn't deserve my hatred. And, you know, that's the thing. Like, these films, whether whether it be a film, whether it be a book, whether it be a comic book, stories are not real life, but they're still informed by real life. And that woman, Spangler's daughter, would have to go through a lot of therapy. She was really bitter. You see that in the script. You see that in the way she acts. You know, she really tries to distance herself. Yeah, yeah, I'm the crazy dirt farmer's daughter. Yeah. You know, and and so I don't think she would just get over it like that. But again, truth is stranger than fiction. But I just really feel like they just kind of hammered that point ad nauseum to death and it took me out of the movie evil dies tonight evil dies tonight yeah with a crazy dirt farmer so moving on with afterlife i as i said i enjoyed it i am going to own it when it comes out oh i probably will too yeah because i i need to have that in my collection I'm looking forward to watching it with my kid. It's going to be fun watching it with my kid. It's because my kid loves Ghostbusters as well. Now, here's here's the one thing I did love. Of course, I loved all the cameos. Loved seeing them. Um, wish Rick Moranis would come back, but I get it. Uh, he he um, retired from entertainment a long time ago. Yeah. And what happens when he comes out? Somebody clocks him in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I couldn't believe that. That was the most random thing ever. I know. So uh, I, I love the cameos. We, we get a cameo right off with Janine. Uh, the boys are back. They did some great stuff. Uh, I love the joke that they have in there about uh, when Gozer says, are you a god? And they all look at Ray like, mm, <laughs> you know. And But one of the cameos that didn't work because they left it as an end credit scene was showing Dana. Yeah. yeah. Because to me, I said, I made this point to you, that really disrupted the flow of it. I... Because I I, I think that when Phoebe contacts Ray, she calls him at the the bookstore, finds the number, calls him. I think that there could have been a... That scene could have been in the movie somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then as they're doing this movie, we're all cheering. It's like, yeah! there's Dana there's Bankman and then phone rings and Bankman picks up the phone and it's like Ray yeah I feel like there should have been a scene where Ray was calling the boys calling uh, Winston calling Peter and be like hey we have a situation and wouldn't it have been great if they had that if there was a call like that where Winston picks up the phone but Winston doesn't look like the rich mogul he's become that was such a cool thing I love that that end credit was, worked very well. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see more come from this because I think it's gonna. I think it'll be a good series going forward if they do what I think they're gonna do. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, the movie's watchable. It it's it has uh, a certain nostalgia to it. It's a nice tribute to Harold Ramis. People were getting teary. Don't come for us. This is just our opinion. If I was to rate it, I'd give it a 6.5 out of 10, which means I would see it in theater at the very least. So, there you go. And you know what? I'll be honest. I, I think that, honestly, like, 6.5 out of 10 is, is about where I'd put it to. Well, that's fair. That's fair. So, Ghostbusters Afterlife, enjoyable. If you're really into nostalgia, you'll love it. Um, as, a stand, as a standalone film, it has its problems. So, but, at the end of the day... When ghosts and supernatural phenomenon are coming, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's not Scooby-Doo and the gang, and it's not the Supernatural Boys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that'd be a crossover, Ghostbusters and Supernatural. I would pay to see that, especially if they could throw in the mystery machine, because I I honestly, since we're just talking about Supernatural here a little bit, my favorite line of 
all time in Supernatural, particularly when they did the Scooby-Doo crossover and he sits there and, oh my God. And he goes, Fred's a wad. I loved that so oh, much. that's hilarious. I loved that so much. And a little bit of trivia. Do you know, way back in season two of Supernatural, they were actually going to do a Friday the 13th crossover, but it got nixed. Well, technically they did a Walking Dead crossover. Did they? Oh, jeez. That's <laughs> hilarious. That's funny. Oh, uh, yeah. As always, we thank you for joining us and listening to our opinion about uh, science fiction, horror, fantasy, and all things pop culture. Nick, social media stuff. So if you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at the area 51 h on Instagram and Twitter, as well as on Twitch, where you can watch me play with dinosaurs every Monday night at 9 and Friday night at 11. And just a reminder to please check out Lover's Lane on YouTube, uh, Lover's Lane Visions for all kinds of John Carpenter-inspired music, and Talbotville Gore for their release of The Five Stakes. Until next time, this is Nick Snyder. And John Allen, signing off from Area 51 and a Half. Take it easy, everyone. Well, that was a... Yeah. Was a yeah. I, I, yeah, I really, it really bothers me that we have things... Like that.